KMTT, today is Tuesday, the Shurin Parshat HaShavua will be given by Rav Alex Israel. Shalom, this is Alex Israel from Alon Shavut, and we are going to be discussing Parshat Bo. Our Parsha this week, um, a very dramatic Parsha, as we see in Israel, leave Egypt. Uh, the Parsha takes um, what we have seen so far in Sefer Shemot and gives it a dramatic twist. Uh, let me try to explain why I think it's so dramatic. The process of Yitzhak Mitzrayim so far has been orchestrated by Kodesh Baruch Hu, uh, in conjunction with Moshe and Aharon. And the people in Israel have been incredibly passive. They have really been out of the picture. It is true that the first time Moshe approached Pharaoh, he approached with the Zikne Israel, but very soon the Zikne Israel seemed to take a side role. And the center stage is taken by Moshe and Haron, uh, enacting the very severe uh, plagues, a series of nine plagues, which seem to devastate Egypt in every way and uh, humiliate Pharaoh and the whole economy, infrastructure, and uh, civil life of Egypt. Egypt is on its knees. Hashem has showed his power. We all know that God is is sovereign. So do, so do Egypt. And uh, the Jews are almost ready to go. But throughout this process, the Israel have been marginalized. The Israel have not done anything. Uh, we don't really know whether they worked or not during the period of the plagues, uh, but we really have no information. Suddenly, in chapter 12, in Perikudbet of Shemot, the Israel are asked to do something. The Israel are told that there is going to be this incredible plague, Makat Chorot, and in order to prepare, they are going to have to do an entire series of actions. First, they're going to have to take a lamb on the, four, on the tenth of the month and hold it for four days, and on the Fourteenth, they're going to have to slaughter it, take its blood and daub it on their, on their doorways. And this is going to protect them from the mashkit, from the destroying power which God has been sent to attack Egypt. Not only that, they have to eat it in a special way. They have to eat it ready to go with their belts on, with their shoes on, ready to leave, they eat it, the chippahs on. Now there are many, many different things that we can talk uh, about when we discuss uh, the Pesach in Egypt. Uh, one fascinating thing is the way that this was actually uh, a preparation to leave. Uh, usually in subsequent years, it was a commemoration. We ate the Pesach to remember that night. We ate matzah to remember the night of the Exodus. Uh, on, in future years, on Seder night, we eat Hesevah and relaxed Kibnei Chorin. That year it was Bechipazon. It was with a sense of tension. After all, we now know the end of the story. But nobody then knew quite what was going to happen um, at midnight. And therefore the Jews ate with an enormous sense of anticipation. And yet, I imagine the atmosphere was tense. They were eating the gods of Egypt. The Egyptians could smell the barbecue of the Korban Pesach. And uh, there was an entire atmosphere of trepidation. Would the Mashchit really protect, would, would really destroy the Egyptians? Would the Jews be protected? 
This was a very, very tense night. What I want to point out, though, is that suddenly Ben Israel turned from passive to active. Ben Israel are told that they have to act and do something. And this is a, a dramatic shift in the story. And the question is why? Could God not have brought the Jewish people out without them doing anything? Why exactly on the night of the Exodus were we asked to engage in this religious ritual which was meant to save ourselves in Egypt? Probably the most famous uh, approach is that B'nai Israel needed this to make them worthy in some way. According to certain traditions, uh, B'nai Israel worshipped the Bodh Zara in Egypt, uh, or somehow were associated with it. So it would appear from Sefer Pascal. And uh, in some way, this would be to cleanse them of pagan ideas, of idolatrous ideas. Um, the Moran Avukim, for example, goes somewhat in this direction, where he says, um, The Egyptians would worship the sign of the Lamb, the zodiac sign of Aries, which actually is the sign under which uh, Pesach happens. It's clear that we slaughter the God of Egypt under the sign of Aries in order to break, uh, to, to break the belief that, that Aries has power. And he says that's exactly why Egypt, because Egypt believed in the God of the sheep and the God of in the zodiac of Aries, that is why they wouldn't allow people to slaughter sheep. As we learn earlier on in the story, Moshe Rabbeinu says um, in Perak Chet, um, he says, uh, we cannot slaughter the, sleep in e- the sheep in Egypt because they will stone us. Uh, why does he say this? Indeed, this was a god of Egypt. So the Moran Abuchim says, uh, that is exactly why we were commanded to slaughter the sheep in Egypt and to sprinkle the blood on the doorpost in order, and I quote, in order to cleanse ourselves of those pagan viewpoints, in order to publicize the opposite. And we have to internalize the fact that the action, the very fact that you think will destroy us, slaughtering the lamb, that will save us from hahashkata. In other words, why we asked to be active here, we had in some way to reject the ideas of Egypt, we had to reject the idolatry of Egypt, and uh, cleanse ourselves of those views. Maybe less extreme, but Rashi, Rashi on chapter 12, verse 6, uh, asks exactly the same question, when it says, you have to keep the lamb for four days, and he says, why did the Torah require the purchase of the Pesach to take place four days before its slaughter? And he quotes a Midrash of somebody called Ramatia ben Harash, um, based on Yechezkel, where he says, Am Yisrael had no zchuyot. Am Yisrael had no particular merit at this time. They were totally Aron ve'eriyah. They didn't have any mitzvot or any zchuyot, any merit in order to come out. And uh, God had to do something about it. And he says, what mitzvot did he give them? Natan lahem shtei mitzvot. Dam Pesach v'dam He gave them the mitzvah of the blood of the Pesach, of the blood of Lula. 
we don't explicitly learn that they did Brit Milah here in Egypt. Um, but we, we, we infer it from Sefer Yehoshua. Two mitzvot were given to them in order to make them worthy of moving. Now, we're going to come back to this midrash in a few minutes. But I would actually like to uh, raise a certain question. How do we know what was the state of Am Yisrael in Egypt? In our Haggadah, we have a, a fascinating line where it says, um, when it talks about, when we, in the Arami Ovei Davi section, we talk about uh, B'nai Yisrael, Vahisham Negoi, and then we say, Am Yisrael was separate there. Do we know whether Am Yisrael were a separate nation, kept their traditions in Egypt, or maybe were assimilated? Uh, you might be aware of the tradition from the Zohar, which says that when Am Yisrael in Egypt, they degenerated to an awful level, uh, to the point that they were in the 49th level of Tumah, of impurity. Um, is that the truth? That's in the Zohar. On the other hand, we have other traditions. The Medrash in Vayikorah says that uh, the Israel in Egypt did not change their names, they did not change their language, they kept speaking Hebrew, they kept uh, some sort of Jewish mode of dress. Is that the truth? Indeed, if that is the case, then they were exceptionally separate. Nowadays, uh, many Western Jews uh, will have English names, will speak English much better than they speak Hebrew, will dress like Westerners, and yet they might be exceptionally religious. Um, how exactly did it work? Were well, Amisrael assimilated in Egypt, or did they keep their tradition? Uh, the evidence in Sefer Shemot is, is particularly sparse, and it's very difficult to process. Um, on the one hand, we definitely have the idea that the Jews lived in a particular area, in Goshen. And uh, this would have facilitated a certain degree of isolation and uh, maybe a particular dialect and a preservation of tradition. I remember some, uh, a year or two ago, uh, we were listening to the Aseret Hadibrot in Shul. I was sitting next to my son. And uh, my son asked me suddenly, he said, um, what language was the Aseret Hadibrot given him? I said to him, well, I think it was spoken in Hebrew. And he said, well, how did the Jews understand it? I said to him, what's the problem? Why didn't they understand Hebrew? So my son said to me, well, when you lived in England, did you understand Hebrew? I said, not too well. He said, well, maybe the Jews only spoke Egyptian. Maybe God should have spoken the Aseret Hadibrot in an Egyptian language. And uh, I have to be honest, he sort of dumbfounded me with this question. What language did the Jews speak in Egypt? And so, uh, after Davani, we decided to go and talk to Raviol bin Nun about this. And when my son asked the question to Raviol bin Nun, uh, Raviol bin Nun replied and said, well, the Jews uh, had a enclave in Goshen, and in Goshen, they preserved Hebrew as a language. Maybe they were bilingual when they were in Alexandria or wherever it was, uh, when they were in Ramses and Piton, they had to speak in Egyptian. Uh, however, when you um, socialized and when you mixed in your Jewish circles, you spoke the ancient language, which came from the mother country, Eretz Israel, and uh, you spoke Hebrew. And that's, uh, Goshen would have allowed, uh, would have allowed this tradition. On the other hand, um, in other words, until now, we can say that they had Goshen, they lived separately. On the other hand, uh, it's clear that the Jews weren't only living separately, 
The whole drama of the Pesach is that God is Poseach al-Habatim. He jumps over the houses. That means that the Jews were living in mixed neighborhoods and not separate at all. Later on in chapter 12, um, the Jews are told to go to their neighbors and uh, ask for particular items. It says uh, here, um, to whom are they meant to go? They're meant to go uh, to their neighbors. In other words, they live amongst the non-Jews. They're not segregated at all. Um, on the one hand, Bnei Israel seem to be very, very aware of their history. At the burning bush, Moshe is greeted by HaKadosh Baruch Hu to give a message to the people. And he is told, um, to tell the people, um, There, God identifies himself as Elohe Abraham, Elohe Yitzhak, Elohe Yaakov. In other words, uh, Hashem anticipated that the names Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov would uh, ring some bells with the Jewish people. Not only that, but they knew a tradition of a land of milk and honey, Eret Tovaru Chava, Eret Zavach to which the Jews had a tradition that they would return. Um, the assumption is that these symbols, um, these particular things, are very familiar to the Israel. They know who they are. On the other hand, uh, we wonder what particular Jewish traditions the Israel might have had in Egypt. They don't have Torah. Um, they didn't have a, an ethnic identity of an Ivri. But what exactly was the content of that tradition? So to summarize where we are up till now, I've tried to raise a very fundamental question. Um, first I've said we have the Koran Pesach, what function is it meant to serve? Uh, the second I've tried to start asking the question, what exactly was the state of Israel in Egypt regarding their Jewish identity? How much did they know they were Jews? How much were they separate? How much had they kept the traditions of their fathers? According to certain traditions, they kept a great deal. But according to others, they were steeped in idolatry, absolutely assimilated, on the verge of totally losing it, uh, losing their identity in Egypt. Again, it was clear that the Egyptians, through their slavery, reminded the Jews constantly of their identity. But in terms of any association with uh, the drama of Jewish history, the Jews were at the 49th level of Tumah, almost unselfish. And this is a question which we have to grapple with and try and understand. At this stage I'd actually like to uh, twist the question around a little bit and uh, in a wonderful Jewish tradition answer this question by posing a, a second question or further question. And I'd like to put the question like this. Did B'nai Israel need to merit redemption? He said that according to Rashi, God appeared to them and he looked at B'nai Israel and they had no mitzvot to make themselves worthy. Why did B'nai Israel need to be worthy of redemption? Did they need to do anything in order to redeem themselves? At first glance, um, it would appear that they wouldn't have to do anything. 
the entire story of slavery and redemption of the Egyptian exile and the exodus is predicted by a divine promise, the covenant of Abraham. This is the very crucial event which we call the Britain, the covenant between the pieces, and it can be found in Bereshit chapter 15. There, Avram was told very, very clearly, Ger you shall surely know the offspring will be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and shall afflict them for four hundred years. And afterwards they will come out with great wealth. In other words, God predicts there will be four hundred years of exile. At the turning point of the exile, in Shemot chapter 2, it says, the people cried out to God uh, because of their harsh labor, and God heard their cries. By his He remembered his covenant. He remembered Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. In other words, God remembers the covenant. The covenant was 400 years in exile, and then you will come out with great wealth. And indeed, in our Parshat Shavuah, in Bo, chapter 12, uh, verse 40, it says, the Jews were in Egypt for 430 years, not even 400 years, but an extra 30. According to this uh, um, suggestion, Bnei Israel should not need to do anything at all. They, it's not about worthiness, it is not about virtue. Whether Bnei Israel are assimilated or undeserving, or indeed, whether they are on an exceptionally high spiritual level, Whichever way, we have to be redeemed. The time is up. 400 years have passed, maybe even 430, and we've been sentenced to a particular period of exile and suffering. That period is limited in its duration. It's fixed. Now, God has to keep his covenant. He has to keep his word. He has to deliver the Yitziat Mitzrayim on time. So why exactly is there even a discussion at all? about whether Bnei Israel are worthy or not, whether Bnei Israel, the action of the Koran Pesach, was there in order to reject Egyptian idolatry. It seems beside the point. The time is up, the promise is to be delivered, now they are to be redeemed. This fascinating question about whether um, Bnei Israel had to come out by virtue of their actions, or because there is a particular time, is actually not only a discussion about the past, the discussion about the future. Um, the Gemara has an amazing machloket, uh, a argument between two opinions about the future redemption. This is a Gemara, if you'd like to look it up, in Sanhedrin, where Rav and Shmuel, the two first-generation Babylonian Amalatim, uh, argue about the future redemption. Rav says, Kalu all the times for the Mashiach have come and gone. And now the redemption depends only on repentance and good deeds. In other words, in order to get the Gula, in order to bring Mashiach, we have to do Tshuva. Shmuel disagrees. He says an interesting statement. In other words, it is enough for a mourner to withstand his mourning period and no more. 
According to Shmuel, there's a, just like there is a fixed period of mourning, there is a shiva, it is only a week, and however distraught somebody is, it doesn't last more than a week. When the mourning period is over, one gets up from shiva, likewise, exile. Uh, we're sent into exile, the punishment, and when exile is over, when the time is over, we get out. Whether we've done shuva, whether we're not done shuva, it makes no difference. Rav says, the future gu'ula is dependent on shuva. Shmuel says, no, there's a fixed period of time. When we've done our time, we come out of jail. How many people are attracted to the Shmuel model? After all, it doesn't demand anything of us. According to the Shmuel model, we have X number of years of exile, and then, then we're finished. God redeems us whether we're good or not. According to Rav, it's much harder. According to Rav, uh, we actually need to change ourselves as a nation. We actually need to work hard in order to do tshuva, repent, return. Um, and in that regard, maybe Shmuel gives us this assured, uh, independent redemption would be fantastic. And yet, it is clear that there are severe disadvantages to Shmuel. Shmuel assures us that there will be a Gula. But if we think about the quality of our Gula, I think we might uh, prefer Ra. Let me explain. If Gula is delivered because the tide is up, then what sort of uh, Gula do we receive? What would be the mood, the atmosphere of this redemption? Um, if we could compare it to if we could, the Mahadavar Doneh, uh, we might be able to compare the models of Rav and Shmuel to a married couple who find themselves estranged from one another. They separate. And now there are two options. Let's, let's imagine two options. Imagine, in the first instance, their psychologist, their marriage counselor, insisted that they move back together and live under one roof, and they try it again. In that situation, uh, the move might be tense and difficult. Uh, we wonder whether anything fundamental of the problems and disagreements would have been solved. Um, what is the probability of success if two people are forced to sit back together? Yes, there are problems in the marriage, and now the psychologist says try it again, so they, they, they live together for a while, but the scenarios are just going to repeat itself. But let's try and think of a different situation. The husband and wife contact each other, they decide to talk about their mistakes, they decide to improve, to change, they, 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 they patch up their differences, they fall in love with each other again. And once they, they, they date again, and then at a certain point when they've repaired everything, then they decide to return to living in the same, under the same roof. Uh, the difference between these two situations is, is enormous. Um, one is forced, it is artificial, it's, yes, moving to the same house but without any inner love, and the other one is where there is a, a, a renewal of the relationship. If Gula happens to Tshuva, we've repaired our relationship with God. If Gula happens because the time is up, then we're not at all sure that the relationship is there. Let me come back to uh, Parshat. It is true that 400 years are up. It is true that the promise of the Britain of Tarim must be delivered upon at this stage in history. The 400 years is finished and slavery must end. But the vital question is, where is the relationship between God and Israel? And here the question of the degree to which Am Israel is assimilated is 
crucial, it's critical to the center. Because what sort of, what sort of future is there going to be for the Jewish people if they indeed, uh, have no merit? And when I mean have no merit, what I really mean is they're not on God's page. If Am Yisrael, as Yechaskel suggests, is steeped in Avodah Zarah, or even if we take a more optimistic scenario, that Bnei Yisrael simply have lost any sense of spirituality, as Rashi puts it, um, they have no mitzvot, um, I'll quote the line from Rashi. The time has come to fulfill the promise to Abraham, the Britain of Tarim. They needed to be redeemed through actions. According to Rashi, um, one needs to have an action in order to be redeemed. There is no such thing as redemption without somehow working on the relationship. Um, and the Mechilta says that uh, one cannot obtain rewards except for Ma'asim uh, This clearly is going to facilitate a radically different uh, notion of Gula, um, which is obviously the type of Gula that we would, we would want to see. Um, so, here we understand that the critical question is exactly what Ben Israel are doing here, and that Ben Israel are um, need to somehow bring themselves into a different mood. Here, I'd like to relate to a fascinating parak in Sefer Yechazkel, and this we're very familiar from our Seder night and for our Brit Milah, where we quote the line "V'omar lach b'damai chayi, v'omar lach b'damai chayi," because in Yechazkel, um, the Navi compares Am Yisrael to a helpless child. To a helpless child. Let me read maybe the, the story of, that he describes. He describes Am Yisrael as an abandoned baby. Uh, this is uh, how Yechezkel is. As your birth, when you were born, your umbilical cord was not cut. You were not bathed in water. You were not being rubbed with powder, nor were you given a, a diaper. No one pitied you enough to do any of these things out of compassion for you. And on the day you were born, you were left lying rejected in an open field. According to Yechezkel, Yechezkel portrays Ben Israel as a baby who's been born. Uh, the mother maybe died, or the mother has abandoned the child. And God passes by this baby and says, I passed by you and saw you wallowing your blood. But I'm, and I said to you, live in spite of your blood. Live in spite of your blood. God sees Ben Israel so helpless and says, despite the fact that you're still covered in the blood of your childbirth, you haven't been washed, you haven't anything, I'll take care of you. And according to the story of Yechezkel, HaKadosh Baruch who raises this child, who is a girl, raises the child and she grows up and eventually God marries her. Um, and that obviously is the notion of Harsinai, where the marriage, in other words, according to Yechezkel, and this is Yechezkel chapter 16, the portrayal of Bnei Israel is one of absolute helplessness. Am Yisrael do nothing. They are a newly born babe who couldn't possibly do anything for themselves. Means, despite your helplessness, despite the fact that you're going to die if I don't do anything immediately, I'll save you now and I will bring you to life and eventually you become independent and grow up and we'll see what will happen. That is the Pshat of Yechazim. However, Rashi, based on the Mechilta, 
has absolutely reverse reading of Yechezkel. In fact, if you look at the Rashi, look at the Rashi, it's on um, Shemot, Perek Yudbet, chapter 12, verse 6. Uh, and it's based on the Mechilta. Um, and I'll, I quoted it before, but I will, I will uh, read it to you again. This is what it says. Rav Matya ben Harash Omer. Rav Matya ben Harash says, Harahu Omer ve'ebora laich ve'ereh ve'hinei ichtcha idunim. The time for the covenant has come. Higia shuash nishpati la'avraham she'egeit banam. The time has come that I promised Abraham that I will redeem your children. Ve'lo haya bi'adam mitzvot itasek bahem k'day shi'galu. They didn't have any mitzvot to practice so that they might be redeemed. Shene'emar va'at harom ve'aryah. You are naked and bare. Benatana hem shtei mitzvot. Dam Pesach v'dam Mila. He gave them the blood of Pesach and the blood of Mila. Shemalu v'otohalayla. Because they circumcised themselves on the night of the Exodus. Shene'emar mitvoseset v'damayif. V'shnei damim. In other words, according to the Midrash, v'omar lach v'damay chayi, v'omar lach v'damay chayi, twice, is... Because of your blood, you will live. Because you do Pesach, because you do Mila, you will live. The Midrash refuses to accept the Pshat of Yecheska. The Midrash refuses to accept the possibility that Am Yisrael left Egypt despite their own actions. That Am Yisrael were passive. That they had a Geula in which they did nothing just because the time was up. Because that Geula is a low quality Geula. That Gula, there is no love relationship between God and Israel. In that Gula, God is, so to speak, forced to take us out because the time is up, but we haven't built anything together with God. The Midrash takes the Pasukim and Yechezkel and inverts them, reverses them, and says, No, does not mean you are helpless, and you have nothing, and therefore I will redeem you. God gave us Dam Pesach and Dam Yula, and now Vedamaychei means, because you have done the blood of Pesach, because you've done the blood of Mila, because you have spilled your own blood, because you have gone against Egyptian society and slaughtered their gods in obedience to your own God, because you've done an incredibly sacrificial action, now you will be redeemed. Because you have demonstrated your allegiance to our Kaddish Baruch Hu, because you have demonstrated that you have confidence in your future and faith in your past, because you have Emun in HaKadosh Baruch Hu who will lead you out of Egypt, now, now you will be redeemed. In other words, uh, the dramatic shift of Parashat Bo means that B'nai Israel, far from sitting on the sideline, enter into the center. Am Israel make themselves worthy of coming out of Egypt in the most absolute way. And this is critical to the story. According to Chanzal, who adapted Pesukim and Yifeskel, this is really the, the, the only way that redemption can come about. Quite fascinatingly, uh, we related to the Bachloket and Rabbi Shmuel, um, quite fascinatingly, um, they discussed the future Geula. Will it come as a result of Tshuva? Will it come as a result because the time is up? The Rambam Nechokot Tshuva says, Chol Hanavim Chulam Tzivu Ala Tshuva Ve'ein Yisrael Nigalim Ela B'Tshuva All the prophets commanded us about Tshuva and the future redemption of Israel will not come about other than through tshuva, through repentance. What do I mean by that? That even in the future redemption, we refuse to believe that it will, it will, it will happen, just because we've had enough galut. We insist that we have to have a higher quality redemption, which demands far more of us, 
Only through tshuva, only through ma'asim tovim, only through us making a move, will we be worthy of a redemption which is worthy of us. The story of our ancient redemption of the Exodus from Egypt is reflected in the views of Jews, of Jews, of Jews. Now time, but apparently what we have to do first is engage in tshuva and ma'asim tovim. Have a good week and shalom shalom.